It's all about the mission and vision. And that always brings you great perspective, even during tough times, whether it's a global crisis or a national crisis or industry crisis. If we lose perspective, I think that's the biggest issue. And so as much as we... Hi, I'm Jessica. And I'm Girish. And this is the Destiny Benders podcast, where we explore the impact of international education on the lives of students and professionals from across the globe. It's a podcast for international educators, by international educators, and about international educators. And in each episode, we'll be meeting with Destiny Benders of our industry. We'll look beyond the job title and really get to know the people whose mission it is to change lives and bend destinies. Welcome back to Destiny Benders. Our guest today is Stacey Brewer, co-founder and CEO of Spark Schools in South Africa. Stacey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be on it. Hi, Stacey. It's really nice to meet you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm looking forward to hearing your story. I'm looking forward to sharing and just having a great discussion together. Yeah, well, let's start right there, Stacey. Tell us a little bit about you. How did you end up becoming the co-founder of Spark Schools and your whole journey of how you got to where you are today? Sure. So actually, it's a, it's not a traditional journey, if you would like to say. So my background, interesting enough, is not in education. I did a, a BSc at university. But when I was doing my master's at a business school here in Johannesburg in South Africa with the idea to move overseas and go get a decent job, because I saw a lot of my friends overseas having to get their master's for a decent job. But in fact, my plans completely changed. And uh, it was highlighted um, during the whole process of doing the MBA in terms of how bad the state of education in South Africa is. We're currently spending the greatest proportion of our budget and GDP on education, and yet we ranked bottom of the world on various competitiveness reports. And so from there, I started seeing there must be some solution or something that we can offer. And so I started also looking at this whole emergence of low-fee private schools, which is happening in developing markets where parents are voting with their feet, choosing to send their kids to fee-paying schools over free government schools with the idea that they could hold the schools a lot more accountable, but they also believe that there's focus on quality education. Um, and then it was through this whole process, and in fact, I then did my thesis on a sustainable financial model for low-fee private schools, um, which formed the foundation of Spark. Um, and so for me, the understanding was really to understand why are these schools low-fee, is there innovation, what is going on? with regards to quality, you know, the way they support their teachers, um, outcomes overall. And I didn't find anything that was super impressive locally. I then started spending time looking at models across the continent, being African continent, also spent some time in India. And then eventually came across um, Rocketship Education in the US, who was pioneering blended learning at the time, which is now 10, 11 years ago. Um, and so really got the opportunity through an introduction to go spend some time with them. And they inspired us a lot with regards to the way they were serving, um, you know, families that were completely underserved. They were competing with affluent schools in the area. They were serving second English language school uh, learners, as well as they had the ability to scale. And so we took and we've got an informal partnership, not really, but a really good relationship. I've got a relationship with the, one of the founders 
and just really enabled us to then launch Spark in South Africa and adapt it and, lo and really localize it. And this was in January 2013 when we launched our first school with 160 kids and 20 staff members. And today we are operating 20 schools with over 14,000 children in the network and employing over 1,100 people. And that's next year will be our 10-year anniversary. Well, amazing. That's Congratulations on that and on reaching that milestone. There are a couple of things you said I want to pick up on. You first mentioned something about a cool job overseas, and that's why you're doing your MBA. And I want to hear a little bit more about what that means. But then also, could you talk a little bit? You mentioned low fee a few times, and I don't think, I mean, I don't know what that means, and I don't think our, our listeners might know either. So first, tell us about what does that mean? Like you going to school, going, I'm going to move overseas for a cool job. <laughs> what does that mean? I think, you know, straight out of university, I spent some time traveling. I think you just really look for opportunities in big corporates um, that are hopefully aligned with, you know, your values and the impact that you want to do in the world. And so, if anything, it was just, I felt it was a gateway for me to get overseas work experience. But it, the reality is in a big corporate, but I don't know exactly what that looked like. I just, it seemed to open a lot of doors if you did have an MBA in terms of opportunities. But as... So looking for the cool job, or maybe I've got a cool job and really need to. Appreciate. I was going to say, I'd argue that you have a really cool job right now. <laughs> not every day. Yes, some days, but not every day. But it's all worth it in the end. Um, and that's what's most important. Um, in terms of low fees, so low fee, I suppose, is a very, it's a term used in developing markets or what other people refer to, you know, some people refer to, refer to affordable private school market. So I know that private schooling and um, fee charging schools could be seen as very controversial in the first world, but it's not necessarily the same for us in developing markets where we are used to paying for healthcare, security, all of those type of things. And so often there's not many schools that are even open or available, or just there's not enough schools to serve the public um, and the demand that you've seen in these various countries and quality is often very, very questionable. And so what you've seen over time, and when we say low fee, they charge a school fee or they low cost in terms of the way that they operate. It's really mom and pop shops, a completely market-driven solution with regards to um, trying to create a better opportunity or future for, could be their kids or the community kids. Um, and it's it's been going around for quite a while, but people have seen this as, a, oh, this is a market-driven solution. There must be opportunities for us to really look at it. If I talk about Spark and when I say low fee and affordable private schooling, yes, we're not, a, you know, if we're charging approximately 1,600 US dollars for the year, you could completely argue that that's not affordable. But when we talk about affordability, we look at affordability of a country. And so we benchmark our total cost to educate against government's total cost to educate to show what is possible and what government is spending per child to educate. So we're trying to drive systematic change and saying it's not necessarily about throwing money at the problem. But how do we take the same price that government is spending per child to educate and show what's possible that can our children are able to compete globally? And so, you know, right at the beginning of Spark, everyone said it's impossible with South African teachers, South African kids, you know, and it's we're proving them wrong every single day. And so it's just about the right system um, in place in order to support them. So we we serve middle to lower income families in the country, but in fact just in terms of value for money and quality and what you see in the various communities, we're attracting all walks of life in terms of income brackets, as well as race. And I think that's super exciting, especially based on our past. As a country, you know, very, you know with apartheid and, you know, we still got a long way to go in terms of the way 
we are able to interact with each other in a very meaningful way. And so if we can help support that process from a young age, we think it's a powerful way to really build South Africa long term. Your schools, you said you started out with one and I think you said you have 20 now. Yes. Uh, are they across the, the country of South Africa or are you spreading into other countries surrounding South Africa in Southern Africa? So at the moment, it's still South Africa focused. So we are, we have 20 schools, many Gauteng, so Joburg, Pretoria. So it's quite a the big metros, if you want to say, in the north. We've got one school in the Western Cape, which is a Cape Town region. But the idea is to start growing Spark um, from 20 schools today to 45 schools by 2026 with our strong strategic investors, which we're very excited about. And then already the conversation's happening in terms of what our cross-border expansion looks like. And so... You know, that for me is really uh, looking at what does that look like with, you know, what country would be next and how do we build on a pan-African story in terms of serving more communities and families across uh, the continent. So, Stacey, I mean, what an amazing story and a journey. Uh, what what sparked you, pun intended, <laughs> to, to want to do this? Because, like you said, I mean, you're going through college and thinking, you know, maybe I'll go get a corporate job, get some really cool experiences overseas. And then you are inspired by uh, making a change. Now, we talk about destiny benders on this podcast, people who really change people's lives. And it, it appears that that's what you're doing for all your students and their families. So talk a little bit more about that destiny bending moment. Uh, who who inspires you? Who has inspired you or who has bent your destiny? Maybe talk a little bit about that. You know, in terms of my background, I've been extremely fortunate in terms of my education, you know, both from primary school, high school, university. So I've been very fortunate and I've seen how it's created a huge amount of opportunities for me. But I did not realize how bad the state of education was in this country. Um, it's very much South Africa runs two economies or two worlds. And I just, it was a huge sense of responsibility saying, you know, if we can't wait for government to do something or expect government to do something, you know, it's, or point fingers, it's not helpful because we're all hurting, you know, you know, whether it's a direct hurt or you employ people or your children, we, at the end of the day, we want everyone to thrive. And to be honest, I just started doing research and the ball just didn't stop rolling. And I, it just kept going from just initially having a conversation with one of my professors saying, why don't you do your thesis on it, to then saying, then meeting one of the angel investors saying, well, why don't you go look at, you know, the various opportunities across either the continent or India and the US. And basically, the ball just never stopped rolling. And I would say in terms of where Spark is today, completely exceeded my expectations that you know, initially I would have said, you know, one school would have been awesome and, you know, just kept going. But doors just kept opening and the right partners and people just started entering and making things happen. And so, yeah, it's, as I said, it's completely exceeded my expectations. If I think about where we are today, then if I think about our new partners with Creative being our investors and then really saying, how do we reach more communities across the continent? And I was like, I haven't even thought about doing that yet. But yes, that's also an important role because... If especially based on COVID and the, I think we've gone back years and years and years in terms of learning loss, what we see in the level of inequality is widening. Um, and so it really just reinforces our role on the continent and what we can do to hopefully push the continent forward in time. And I'm curious to know, as you speak about your schools, where did the name Spark come from? Uh, Spark Schools. How did you get that idea? So in fact, one of the um, Bailey, who was part of the founding team, was um, 
we were back and forth around different ideas for Spark. And she was reading, I think it's a, a book called Spark at the time, and then um, recommended. And basically, it comes from the William Yates quote, education is not the filling of a pill, but the lighting of a fire. And because we wanted to start from, you know, the ground up in terms of the younger kids, it was to create a spark also around hopefully encouraging others to do the same, creating some level of change in expectations or dialogue or, you know, wherever we could create in terms of systematic change. But then it's also aligns to our core values. So we're a non-denominational school, but we have values that we need to live by and in terms of service, persistence, achievement, responsibility and kindness. And so we have a morning assembly every day at school called Sparks Fly, and our children say their daily creed, which is a promise to themselves and to each other um, in making sure that they've got this social conscious and responsibility in making the country a better place. Even from grade, from kindergarten, from grade art, you know, there's this huge focus. It's, you know, I'm serving my classmates, community and country, and we even try instill it as much as we can in various parts of the organization in terms of like homework packs or say, well, what did you do to serve your community or how did you serve your classmates? So people are very aware in terms of the behaviors that we want to see um, with our scholars. Stacey, I want to go back to something you said earlier. You were talking about how incredibly, incredibly privileged you've been with all your education and whatnot. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that? And, you know, as you're going through high school and college, was it a career that you're thinking about? Were you aspiring to be something, do something, and then you got derailed and then got on this track? <laughs> um, so in terms of, yeah, so I went, I mean, I went to a co-ed government school in South Africa now many, many, many years ago. And then I went to an all-girls private school and the exposure was very different in terms of who were your classmates from at that time wasn't diverse in terms of race because it was during a party for a primary school, but it was diverse in terms of income brackets. I mean, high school being around very privileged, sort of similar profile individuals. And I, I would say my high school experience wasn't wonderful by any means. And if anything, I if someone said to me, you're going to be you know, playing a role in education or be involved in education, I would have said under no circumstances. It was just this foreign concept for me and and it's funny that I don't know so my mom's originally a teacher my dad's an entrepreneur and I'm like maybe a great mix of them both I never ever thought I'd be here um I think it's just I was I went on a journey um that I was open to in terms of experience but I've always had a strong sense of responsibility ambition and like ownership in terms of of making things better so I don't necessarily wait for permission or wait for others to do it um, I feel it, I, you know, why can't we just take action? And what what made you that way? <laughs> I don't know. I suppose you, your your parents, your... Um, I've always been super ambitious, you know, from a, from a young age in terms of academics and sporting, always highly, as, you know, ambitious and aspirational. But I've always been very, like a very strong-minded, independent individual that always thought everything was possible. But can you think of somebody in your life who really kind of had that impact on you or uh, as you reflect on it, bent your destiny? So I wouldn't, I, yeah, sorry, you actually asked me this question earlier. I wouldn't say there's been one person that's been highly inspiring for me. But if I look at the people I most respect and um, aspire to be like are people that have been through, you know, some of the hardest challenges and 
got a great sense of responsibility for the country and making it better. So the people that inspire me local are the big activists that you in, in during apartheid time and how they were willing to give up and sacrifice a lot and potentially could have even lost their lives in terms of really trying to push change that they knew was positive. And I just, I wonder what I would have been doing if I was their age and would I have also been driving and really been an activist and maybe I, Maybe my role now has been an activist in education um, in driving better change for the families that deserve it um, everywhere. You know, we've just seen everyone is underserved. And so how do we change that? And Stacey, our podcast is um, essentially of, about international education. We say at the beginning of the podcast that it's for international educators, by international educators, and about international educators. And I know you probably don't necessarily think of yourself as an international educator, but the people listening to the podcast, many of them will be. Is there uh, anything that you want them to know about South Africa, um, mm-hmm. the education in South Africa? possibly partnering with institutions in South Africa? So so I'd say, you know, South Africa, I mean, so first of all, the price, okay, so you've got the government sector, which is 95% of all schools, and then you've got the 5% being private schools, and very much you're not really seeing chains, and we don't have the equivalent of what you have at the charter system here in South Africa. It's literally you private or you um, you government. Even as a private institution, you actually can receive government subsidies depending on the fees that you charge, but a lot of these, there's just one-off schools. It's not as if they've got these massive opportunities and networks, and maybe there's an opportunity for us to consolidate in a more meaningful way that in terms of what that engagement looks like from professional development, aid tech offerings, you know, really dealing with a lot of our, our issues. And I suppose in many ways, we've all got the same issues with regards, you know, to education around how we can better support our teachers. What does additional resources look like? How can we close the gaps in terms of of learning? And, you know, for me, South Africa, because we're in a highly constrained environment with regards to not necessarily getting, you know, the strongest candidates in education with regards to um, new qualifications or graduates um, in a really resource constrained with regards to capital as well, it's a great opportunity to drive innovation and especially frugal innovation. And so, I think there's always ways of that we can better better collaborate. Um, and if for me, it's not just South Africa. There's a lot of developing markets that are also all trying to figure it out. And so I sit on the board of the Global Schools Forum, which is basically represents the affordable private school movement or market, if you want to say, in a lot of the developing markets across all the continents. Uh, you know, in terms of who are developing countries, and I think. The Global Schools Forum for me would probably be a great avenue in terms of really collaborating with regards to best practice from both ways, you know, whether it's um, the US in terms of great ideas or how to be more frugal and innovative due to a highly constrained environment. So um, I think they are worthwhile engagement tool for us to, you know, consider. But what I would encourage international listeners is that please don't view private schools as bad. And I think this often stops the conversation, which it's different in different markets. I think let's rather speak around how are we serving our kids and how are we solving for problems in that market and big problems. And whether we need, all need each other, we need the ecosystem to work. Whether And there's never going to be one solution. It's going to be multiple solutions. So 
I would really encourage people to be open to the conversation of what private education and providers look like. It's not necessarily the people that are driving the inequality. In fact, they're filling a gap due to lack of schools and lack of quality education in the developing markets. Yeah, so let's talk about the work that you're doing, right? Uh, you talk about society shapers at Spark. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about your philosophy? How do you ensure that all your 20 schools are kind of maintaining that um, the same philosophy as they're, as you grow and uh, how are you equipping your faculty and your staff to ensure that's happening, all of that? The absolute bedrock or cornerstones of the organization are our values and our core values, which um, when you visit Spark, you will see that it's very much alive. So if, let me first start. So the vision of Spark is for South Africa to lead a global education. And so what we mean by that is we're not saying Spark must lead global education, but South Africa. So what are we doing and developing within the organization that can help the ecosystem? So an example would be we ideally recruit graduates. We spend about 200 plus hours a year training and developing them. Yes, it's going to be great support for Spark going forward, but also if they leave Spark, they're better, they're better professional that hopefully that they can have better practice going, going forward. If you see Spark overall, all our schools are really consistent with regards to the way we operate and the look and feel um, and the way we encourage the core values to be shown up. And so a lot when we are opening schools, you will see our school leaders are all homegrown. We don't necessarily take someone brand new and then include them. They very much have been part of the culture and organization for a while for them to open a new school. And then ideally, we look at about a third of the new staff coming from Spark in terms of they know the way we look and operate. I mean, this is a big challenge for anyone. There's always around consistency at scale and making sure that we can um, support both teachers, new to Spark, new to position, school leaders within their role. Um, and a lot of it, I think, is just focusing on that professional development. So not just around the technical support um, in terms of great teaching practice, but also culturally, what does it look like? Leadership development. There's a huge focus on professional development. And then it's supported with regards to our school achievement managers and then the way they're reporting around, in particular, around academic achievement and progress over time, as well as stakeholder experience. And so we look at that quite seriously, making sure do we have a group of satisfied parents? What are their concerns? Do we have a thriving team? Where are their gaps? What do we need to address? And what is the level of parent oh, of scholar engagement um, and the feedback that they give to us? So we look at it in various angles and try to reinforce as much as we can. I wouldn't say we've perfected it as much as we can. And I did not just codify, but the culture and the way we operate needs to really live up to the expectations of the organizers, of, the, of what we expect as an organization, sorry. And we just need to then reinforce it and make sure that we give the, the school leaders a necessary support. And so a project that we're doing at the moment with regards to the codification. So this is really to give school leaders a toolbox with regards to what it means to run a great Spark school in particular. Your students, when they graduate from a Spark school, I'm, I think you said it goes up through through the high school, right? Through the end of high school. Where do they go? So a lot of the people who listen to our podcast, again, are people who recruit from other countries to come and study at their university in a, in a different country. Do your students tend to stay in South Africa to go on to university or do they go on to apprenticeships, vocational qualifications, go straight into work? What, what does that kind of class look like? So we haven't got there yet. 19 primary schools, which is K to seven, and we've got one high school. So next year is our first year of grade 12. 
Um, so we that's actually a big project that we're looking at with regards to alumni tracking. But in terms of realistically, you know, I would say probably a lot of our scholars would just stay within the local market um, and either you know, going to technicons or university, but for us, what's important is that they are able to choose a career of their choice. We're not saying university is necessarily the answer or technicon, but whatever suits, you know, their passions and their skill set. But if we can, you know, over time, give our scholars an opportunity to to go overseas and get great exposure, I think, you know, absolutely, why not? I would just say they have to come back. They have to pass it on and come back and support the development of the country. So, see, I want to go back to the core of our podcast theme, which is Destiny Benders. And we talked about your life and people impacting you. But as the CEO, I'm sure your day-to-day is just busy with meetings and whatnot. But how are you playing a role in changing the lives of, I don't know if you get a chance to work with students directly, but at least your staff, your administrators. Um, can you think of people whose lives you've really changed or destinies you've bent? <laughs> um, good question. You probably need to ask them. I, I mean, for me, the most, my biggest dream from Spark is that we have a great opportunity because we get to work with scholars and we get to work with adults, kids and adults. And we've got an opportunity. And for me, if people can reach their fullest potential and go places they never thought was possible, that for me is awesome. So I I don't know if we've done enough of that and probably more, you know, to do. So I really, where we can try, create opportunities, give give people the opportunity to, you know, whether it's promotions internally or different levels of exposure. But I, for me, it's essential that I that I can expose the team as much as possible, but I'm there to support and help them grow and become the best like versions of themselves. I know that might sound cheesy, but if we can get people to really grow and develop in themselves, it's critical. And so I might not have a personal touch directly on every single person, but there's certain key things that I need, I think, essential for us as an organization around the professional development. We have our leadership development program, which is called Trailblazers, you know, also focusing on the character overall, the core values, which is around, it was very focused at the scholars. Now we're really pushing what does that look like for adults in terms of behaviors and how we show up. So as much as I can maybe not have a direct influence on touching people's life directly, but if I can institutionalize an organization that is heavily focused on professional development and support and on core values and showing them up in the right way in terms of behaviors and supporting one another and really driving the mission in terms of service for our scholars and family, I feel that that will stand the test of time. I want to make sure this organization lives way beyond me. Ambitious goals for sure. <laughs> yes, it's a marathon, not a sprint. As everyone <laughs> You keep reminding yourself that every day don't you yeah exactly. so 2026 20, 45 schools yes yeah that's four years 25 more schools yeah 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 it's yeah we're back to serious growth you know the last two years of covid was very much we pulled back it was just maintaining and surviving and now we're back you know to growing and so we're fortunate that we have you know in terms of the critical mass now we've seen that's really going to enable us to grow even more and we've got you know, really getting stronger teammates, um, right strategic partners from a shareholder perspective. So, yeah, we've got to make it happen. Yeah. I was going to ask you about COVID. How was that? How did that impact you? And any key learnings uh, operating two years in such a global pandemic? Yeah. 2020 for us was hit like hard, hardcore. That's my year of big, uh, big goal panty year um, where we had to make a lot of tough calls. Um, so, you know, schools went into lockdown mid-March or so, well, closed. 
um, and no one obviously knowing the extent of, of COVID. And so someone said to me early stage, which I really appreciate, they said the name of the game is stay in the game and do whatever you can to protect the whole. And I, you know, very quickly we started seeing parents not paying, so cash flow completely declined. You know, we had to pull back on all growth. And so due to that, we had to retrench half of our head office to completely you know, pull back. We had we did salary cuts. We did whatever we could to protect as much as possible. By mid year 2020, we we closed three schools down, but it was more of a consolidation. So moving some of the smaller schools to more other bigger neighboring schools to really drive up the utilization there to protect. Because even by the end of 2020, we had there was no vaccine rollout plan. You know, we were in the second wave. Then you know, just no one knew how bad. It was going to be, and so we just made sure that we could protect and make a str- the platform and the as strong as we could. And then, um, so going into 2021, you know, we had we then had another two serious lockdowns. We started the year with schools weren't open, and um, a lot of our families do not have a support or infrastructure at home, so it was highly stressful for everybody. Not just one device, but multiple devices. A lot of families were losing jobs, so it was just a very, very, very tough time. Then and. But then we also had the riots in South Africa, so we had to delay the school opening. So there was just a lot going on. Even though it was super hard and, it, it you know, in terms of losing some of the staff members, um, for me it was important that we could protect the whole as much as possible. And and I, we are definitely, I would say, emerging stronger out of COVID. And I'm hoping this year we'll see a full recovery with regards to it. But it, it, yeah, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't easy from a school operator perspective as well as a business operator perspective, but we are coming out stronger for sure. A lot of lessons around, um, yeah, just making sure that you're building a company of resilience and, you know, what is the next crisis? So whether it's COVID, there's going to be something else. And so what are we doing as an organization to build resilience long-term? And because there's always, there's going to be something else sooner rather than later as well. As a company, you can pivot quite quickly in in a situation um, where possible and so the right people in the right place you know all of that the MBA and what everyone tells you to do is all oh, great yeah. and it's often quite <laughs> or harder um, in a practical setting and for me it was also interesting seeing how, how certain leaders really stepped up in that time I say they were wartime leaders versus you know peacetime people that can just maintain versus people dealing with a crisis so no it was hard but the most important thing is we got through you know and we are now back to growth, back to serving more families. And what I'm super excited to see is some of the team members that left us two years ago due to retrenchments are now coming back. Stacey, so you talked a lot about the organization resiliency during COVID. But as the head of the organization, as the leader of the organization, what advice do you have for others who are listening? Like, for example, you know, I, I'm, I lead an organization, so I went through some of the things that you're talking about. But I'm curious if you have some advice on how does a leader prepare for or position themselves to be ready for such situations? <laughs> Is that not the million-dollar question? But let me think, if I had to give advice or if I suppose if I had to do it again it, so if from a shareholder base to a team base always make sure you've got the right people long term because I even saw from a shareholder base two of them as soon as it got rocky started panicking and there was drama versus the other two who are just like rock solid long-term thinkers and that were willing to go through the bumps and waves with you and not and literally walk with you and support you and 
that for me was game changing and building those relationships and realizing they are completely the right partners. So really reinforcing from an investor base, don't just take the money, make sure you've got strong partners that get the vision long-term and are willing to go through the bumps. And the same for the team. So I think if people, if you recruit, it's all about the mission and vision. And that always brings you great perspective, even during tough times, whether it's a global crisis or a national crisis or industry crisis, if we lose perspective, I think that's the biggest issue. And so as much as we can ensure that the mission and vision is felt and alive as in many parts of the business as possible, that people will be able to see the big picture to go through the bumps, I would say is probably the most critical. And then the other part is, is really building, well, I would in reflection is building an organization where really people do feel empowered to take action. Because in a time of a global crisis or whatever the crisis is, you, you won't as an individual or founder or a leader be able to be everywhere all the time. You know, BAU is one thing that you can manage and monitor, but in a crisis, you need people to really step up and make good and important decisions that are aligned to the organization. And so that's also, I would say, is critical is that there's a there's a real strong sense of ownership and empowerment within the team and the individuals. Um, and I would also say, be careful of fads, because everyone soon as, you know, everyone went online and there's pressure, oh, you've got to do an online school. And it's like, everyone just... Calm down, calm down. We need to make sure, what is the problem we're solving for? Like, honestly, do we see this fundamentally shifting? I'm not, there's absolutely a place for online. We've always had a place for online, at, you know, in education and our schools at Spark. But I just also saw a lot of, like, even some people in turn, maybe you should be doing this, maybe you should be pivoting. Do, yeah, just take the bigger picture and the longer term view with regards to um, where you really see the market shift as opposed to the immediate need and crisis and panic stations. So hopefully those few items are helpful. That's great. Thank you so much. Uh, yes, it was definitely helpful. I like that pivoting. Got so sick to death of that word in the past two years. Everyone calm down. <laughs> calm down. Right? Yeah. Just calm down. Yeah. Is this really the most like an important decision? That's I mean, it sounds like an incredible journey, and and we wish you the best as you continue to grow and and reach or scale new heights and whatnot. But we want to switch gears a little bit. We always do this. We we move into a quick fire question just to kind of get to know who Stacy really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's my first question: like, Who is Stacy? Like, what does she do when she's not leading Spark? Yeah. And, I heard a couple of dogs barking in the back. So (laughs) what do you do for fun? I'm very much an extrovert. So I love to be around people and to socialize. And my favorite thing is just meeting new people. Um, Obviously, traveling is my favorite thing to do. Just really engaging with new people, new cultures. I feel it just adds so much more flavor and color to who you are and the way you then engage and think of life and I suppose, you know, just opportunities differently. Yeah, I do. I have two dogs from X. I love boxing. I do all of that. But I'm just, when I'm best in my flow and in my groove is when I'm surrounded with, you know, either peers within the education space, great friends, and just really having some good conversations around debating certain topics on life or how we should be addressing problems. And so I really like um, being intellectually stimulated in the way we can operate. My question for you is, Based, you said you got an MBA, you went to business school. What was your favorite or what would you recommend if someone was to want to read a business book? A book that how to or to change your life, but, you know, business related. 
If you are an entrepreneur or a budding entrepreneur, I think the most powerful book for me was The Hard Things About Hard Things. I felt it was just, it was brilliant in terms of talking about the realities of running, starting and running a business because, you know, we very quickly glamorize and think everyone's successful and they just woke up one day and it was just amazing. But, you know, no one knows <laughs> how much pain and sacrifice and everything that goes along with it. So I found that extremely powerful. And I would say it's actually the best, if you want to say an MBA book in terms of a business leader um, that I've read would be the CEO Excellence that's just come out recently. That's um, the McKinsey book. It was published by a few of their um, partners. For me, in terms of focus as a business leader around being an excellent CEO, it's very practical, very insightful. I would, yeah, I thought it was just its brilliant perspective. What um, the first one that you mentioned? What was that again? And who is the author? Okay, the hard things about hard things, and it's been hard. Hold on. I haven't heard this one. Oh, Not by Ben Horowitz. The hard thing about hard things. Horowitz. It speaks very much to an entrepreneur's journey, and I think maybe the loneliness of it that I think a lot of people don't appreciate or realize. Mm-hmm. They just think CEOs or entrepreneurs go around talking and like not doing too much and, you know, being a good face in the company. But I, this is just a like a great reality check and that it's normal, your journey. I suppose that's what's important. Good recommendation. I should pick it up. My next question to you is you mentioned traveling. You said you love to travel. Um, what are some of your favorite places? Or if, if you can think of a favorite place, what's a place you'd like to visit that you've never had a chance to? I have not spent much time in South America. And so I would love to spend some time there. I've been fortunate to live and work in Europe, you know, in the UK, in the US, um, spend some time traveling, you know, backpacking back in the day, you know, around Southeast Asia. So if I got an opportunity and hopefully I'll have a sabbatical soon, just a short sabbatical, but and I'd like to spend some time, yeah, just in South America, um, because I just don't know the area. And I just think it's, and I know it's a continent, it's not a country, but I'm open to what those experiences look like and just wherever it takes you. So, but if I had to, if I was given a ticket to anywhere in the world today, and so you could choose wherever you wanted to go, I'm very interested to go to Mexico. Again, have not spent time there. I love to feel a city and the energy and the chaos and all of that, and I've heard it's similar, to, can be similar, Mexico City, and I that fascinates me to just have that experience. And then you go to the beach to relax from the chaos of the city. Yeah, I've been to Mexico City a number of times, actually, and I love it. It's, it is a fantastic city. Awesome. Yeah, totally recommend it. Wonderful. We want to be cognizant of time, but we can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to spend with us. You're doing some incredible work. Congratulations on everything you've achieved. Uh, congrats on the upcoming 10-year anniversary. And uh, we wish you the very, very best to hit that 45 by 26. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. And it's been great to share everything with you. And honestly, it's a massive team effort. This is could not be achieved by one person. So just really to acknowledge the team. But thank you very much. Destiny Benders will take a break for NAFSA. Our first guest in June is Susan Fong, a UK-based Chinese entrepreneur who is CEO and co-founder of Oxbridge Holdings. Mm-hmm.